Hello, everybody. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. This is Roman. Uh, Women's Magazine with Global Val is off this week. They'll be back next week, as well as the Common Thread Collective. However, I'm going to play a audio clip from a teach-in that happened this past Tuesday that was put on by the Center for Political Education. If you're not aware, the Center for Political Education is a great organization. They provide a lot of great uh, programming that's accessible and engage with a lot of really important discussions that need to be happening, especially in today's climate. So if you're interested in checking out this video, um, if you go to facebook.com forward slash center, the number four political education, and again, this was a teach-in, um, emergency teach-in about Venezuela that happened uh, this past Tuesday. So you can check out the video there, and you can also see a lot of their other work as well. And I'm going to um, give you their website as well, because they're a really important organization that folks should support and know about. If you go to politicaleducation.org, they have a lot more information that they can share with you. And also, they're a great org if you'd like to be able to donate to them as well. So again, this will be a emergency teach-in about Venezuela that was put on by the Center for Political Education this past Tuesday. So stay tuned. really uh, active in uh, it's all scared. Uh, just so yeah. um, so I, um, so my name is Carlos Martinez um, I am an advisor with the CPE um, I've been active around Venezuela stuff for a long time I uh, co-authored a book Venezuela Speaks Voices from the Grassroots which was published by PM Press back in 2010 it's now kind of vintage but I think it's still worthwhile. Um, so thank you all for coming tonight. Um, the CPE for folks. How many uh, folks have never been in this space before? First time. All right. It's the first time. It's great. Um, so um, the CPE was uh, kind of born out of this space. This space is actually the 518 uh, Eric Casada Center. Eric was uh, close friend, comrade, and, and also co-creator of the Center for Political Education, um, which was formed in 1998, um, basically to create a space for leftists, for organizers, social movement people to get together to have a space to think uh, analytically, strategically about left organizers, right? And this is, again, in 1998, so this is a time when kind of the left was especially in disarray, um, so there was sort of a need for that kind of space. And you know, arguably the left is still in this race. We still need this space. Um, so, um, you know, we always like to acknowledge that um, we have, of course, uh, are on native land here. Um, and in fact, right uh, next to behind us, as one of our uh, members of longtime uh, participants and uh, native member of the CP, is often likes to point out there's actually a plaque on the opposite side of this uh, street that uh, marks this as a space where the uh, California Mission was. Uh, built, right? So uh, that is always important for us to acknowledge. Um, and, um, you know, the CPE has been really uh, active in kind of building up its capacity over the last couple of years. We have amazing uh, co-coordinators, Rachel and Isaac over here. Um, um, 
And, you know, they've been doing amazing work, which needs support. And so, you know, if you didn't get your CPE brochure, please get that. Um, and there are so many ways to throw down and participate and support this really unique space that, you know, obviously we don't have enough of. And so, you know, show some love to CPE, um, you know, with that bucket at some point, right? Um, so, um, so this event was organized um, as an emergency response to the latest actions uh, that the U.S. has taken um, against Venezuela. And it particularly out of concern that while many of the left have been uh, vocal in their opposition against this latest intervention, we've also noticed quite a bit of silence and reticence to speak about the situation for many quarters of the left. Um, Understandably, there's quite a bit of confusion about the situation in Venezuela. Um, the events over the last few years have been very complicated and they're hard to keep up with. We're all busy people, right? Um, and getting reliable and detailed information here in the United States um, can be really difficult, right? Um, but as we'll get into in, in this panel, this confusion also indicates the success um, with which the dominant narrative about Venezuela has been shaped by U.S. foreign policy objectives, uh, which have resulted in a major hostility towards the Venezuelan government and the Bolivarian revolution. Um, Venezuela is undoubtedly experiencing an unprecedented uh, crisis, and there's a lot of debate within the left regarding how much blame should be assigned to who, to the Maduro government, to the opposition to the United States. Some lay blame on one of these, some lay blame on all three. Um, and there's a legitimate space for critique and debate within the left about the successes or failures of the Venezuelan government, just as there's a legitimate space for critique and debate within the left about any elected official, right? Um, and that debate is certainly happening on the ground in Venezuela. But my own perspective, and I think the perspective of the panelists, is that the primary role of the left within the most militarily powerful and belligerent country on the planet is not to act as arbiters or as adjudicators of how revolutionary or not revolutionary the Venezuelan government is, right? The role for the left in the United States, that's the role for the left in Venezuela. The role for us here is to protect the space for the kind of lively debate that has actually characterized and been a core part of the Bolivarian Revolution from the very start. Um, and this uh, expansion of, demo of popular democracy is a dynamic that actually I documented uh, along with um, my, the co-authors of the book Venezuela Speaks extensively. Um, and people in Venezuela, you know, would often talk about the revolution within the revolution to talk about the, this internal lively critique and debate that has always been a feature of, of the process. Um, so as much as the U.S. Uh, current U.S. intervention is being characterized as a fight against authoritarianism, we, we know all too well that the U.S. has no interest in protecting or deepening popular democracy in Venezuela. And in fact, one of the first casualties of U.S. interference is that it makes internal critique and debate, which is so necessary, very difficult, as the left in Venezuela is forced into a defensive stance against an increasingly hostile right-wing movement with an incredible amount of U.S. support and resources. So we believe that to support the clandestine deal-making, the saber-rattling, coming from Washington, the economic extortion that has characterized the latest U.S. intervention in Venezuela is not a valid, coherent left position. We're all too aware of the outcome of recent and ongoing U.S. interventionism in Latin America, resulting in the reestablishment of right-wing power in Brazil, Honduras, and elsewhere. And we're clear that the Trump administration's push for regime, regime change in Venezuela is not grounded in humanitarianism, but rather in a strategic effort to reestablish U.S. hegemony in the region. 
So this becomes all too obviously pain, uh, too painfully obvious when we see the administration's ongoing support for the one Orlando Hernandez government in Honduras, responsible for widespread and targeted violence of the country's opposition that's led to the wave of asylum seekers that are currently arriving at our southern border. Um, so we believe that it's incumbent upon the left uh, to resoundingly resist U.S. militarism and to think strategically about how to do so. So to help us in this urgent task, we are joined by a fantastic panel of folks who will be talking about the situation in Venezuela and the forces that we're up against. Uh, so to begin, Carolina Morales is a queer migrant from Venezuela who's been building community wellness and change in San Francisco for the past 15 years, at least. Um, Carolina has worked as a service provider, organizer, and educator with a number of groups like the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, Queer Alliance, the City College Queer Alliance, and the Center for Political Education. Um, and she's been traveling to Venezuela frequently over the last uh, few years. Sofia Cardenas is a Chilean-American uh, paraeducator and graduate of San Francisco State University's Ethics Studies program, um, or college, or college of Ethics Studies. Well, right. Hey, sorry. Okay. I know. I'm like looking at Jason. Um, she participated in a delegation to Venezuela in 2017, where she interacted with a number of food justice organizations, communes, and revolutionary collectives. Uh, she returned to Venezuela in 2018 to spend time with feminist and LGBTQI collectives such as ASTRE, which is La Alianza Sexo Genero Diversa Revolucionaria. She served as an observer for the May 2018 Venezuelan presidential elections here in San Francisco. And finally, Roberto Lovato is a writer and investigative journalist based at the San Francisco Writers Grotto, whose work has appeared in The Guardian, Boston Globe, Der Spiegel, The Nation, Foreign Policy, and other national and international outlets. He is also a formal political strategist, the co-founder of Presented.org, the country's largest online Latino organization that has been studying U.S. counterinsurgency and destabilization programs for almost 30 years, since the wars in Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua's country war. Sorry if I was talking really fast, but I was trying to get it. <laughs> Something that I often do, Oh yeah, thank you. Um, so also, um, we have somebody doing live video of this event, um, of us, not of you, right? Um, that's being posted to the Facebook uh, event page for this event. Um, so we're actually asking that folks not do live video um, because it's already there being done and if people want the video afterwards, it'll be there and available. Um, so if you start doing that, you will be asked to um, and yeah, that's it, so, yeah. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for being here. Again, I'm Carolina Morales, and I'm an immigrant to this country. I have the privilege now of being a U.S. citizen. Um, and, um, I think it's been now maybe three years that I've been a U.S. citizen. Um, and also have had the privilege to, to travel on and off throughout the past 15 years back to Venezuela where my parents, grandparents, aunties, cousins still reside. Um, and I, I'm gonna begin by share, giving you more of a kind of personal perspective and also uh, help you humanize what we're talking about because I think in the media, you know, um, the extent of the humanization is more showing protests 
or then just talking about, you know, giving off all kinds of statements and assumptions about, you know, this is a dictator or this is authoritarian governments or, right? Uh, we, we don't really hear about the, the everyday kind of lives of, of folks down there. Um, so I came here at 17, right? And before coming here, the, the reality of what I saw in Venezuela and actually what inspired me to do social change work was that when I would walk home with my dad to the panaderia on Sundays, um, right to the bakery, to get bread, um, I would see a lot of children sleeping on the street. Children under 15 years old with no shoes sleeping on the sidewalk. At least, I would compare a little bit like the mission. So it's um, working class neighborhood, um, maybe not the you know, extremely working class. They're not extremely low income, but you know, the kind of working class, lower middle class neighborhood. Um, so you can imagine, right, the other neighborhoods that were a lot more low income were really, really struggling. But when I grew up, uh, Venezuela had about 80% of the country was living in poverty. Um, more about the reality when I, when I grew up, uh, public safety, which is something that the media loves to talk about in terms of Venezuela, saying that people get robbed all the time and it's very you know, unsafe to be on the streets. Yes, I mean, I got robbed when I was 16 walking to school you know, by two other young, you know, young men uh, with a weapon. And that was before Chavez. So um, wanting, wanting to paint a picture for you, right, of what I was seeing every day there. Then fast forward to me coming to the US, and that's my own personal story actually around coming out and how that affected my own decision making around staying here. Um, and I started seeing the reality of the US and then the promise that the US was, right? So people talk about the American dream and how great right, the US has a lot of freedom. Everybody lives in like these beautiful homes with like picket fences. Everything that I see in Hollywood movies, everybody's white, <laughs> very European looking, green, green or blue eyes. Um, and started, of course, came at 17, started getting a lot more politicized and started understanding what, you know, where the root causes of poverty, right? How does systemic oppression affect uh, folks' lives? And then I had a, a quick also politicization, politicization. Um, with my own experience as an immigrant here, uh, right? Speaking English as a second language, having to right endure uh, sexual violence at work because I didn't have papers to work, having no place to turn, a lot of different things. And so with that, we start looking, I start traveling back to Venezuela again and seeing the differences. Seeing that there were no longer children sleeping on the sidewalks with no shoes. Um, seeing that there were a lot of uh, reclaiming of public space and open space. So the plaza, so I had to cross through two different plazas to get to school. And these classes used to be super run down. The fountains were like completely empty, full of garbage, 
everything was just really run down. Um, smelly, uh, again, more folks sleeping in the plaza, adults sleeping in the plaza, right? Homeless folks. And coming back, I didn't see that. Actually, the plazas were reactivated, uh, playgrounds for kids were installed, uh, there were families actually hanging out at the, at the plazas, they're active. And they continue to be, because I just went back again in December and came back on January 5th. Um, and then we see also in terms of housing, right? Connected, connected to this reality, I have a friend of mine who is the executive director of one of the biggest theater, um, theaters in Venezuela, the Teresa Carreño, right? And he, um, number one, he's the, the first um, Afro-Venezuelan who is running such a big artistic institution. And he's a working class Afro-Venezuelan. And so that already is a huge, uh, huge advancement. And he's a young man running such a, such a big institution that used to be basically where the opera and the ballet uh, took place, right? Where only the elite would go which I remember, you know, I, I started doing theater when I was 11 years old at school. And I remember having only been able to go to the Teatro Teresa Carreño, to this theater, twice in my whole lifetime because ballet was something that was not very accessible to everybody. It's not very appealing to all communities, unless you're right of a certain background sometimes. Um, and also everything was very expensive. Um, and now, when you go to El Teatro Teresa Carreño, so first, if you can imagine, the theater has, a, it, the architecture is beautiful. So it's really large and a, a lot of open spaces. Um, it doesn't have a roof, except for you know, the, the actual salas. The rooms, the room, yeah. The theater, the, theater, the big stages, those have um, uh, a roof. You walk through, there is a lot of air, a lot of trees, and a lot of open space. Now when you walk through it, it's actually activated. There are tons of groups, uh, theater groups, dance troops, from uh, hip hop dancers, to break dancers, to modern dancers, dancers, to different ethnic dances, from Puerto Venezuela, but also from the immigrants that we have of other countries, also practicing, just in the open space taking space. So there is a, a, um, a big thread there, right, around making sure that, that the spaces for the public are actually being utilized by the folks who really uh, also need it most. So Irving in Teatro Teresa Carreño has been bringing a lot of um, Afro-Venezuelan group culture into the theater and really uplifting that instead of only uplifting um, European arts and culture, right, like ballet and opera. And he, um, he grew up very, very working class, and now guess where he lives? He lives in one of the many housing complexes that the government has uh, developed for, uh, for working class people, where you get your home for free, it's not a commodity, you're not allowed to sell it, Right, but you can give it to like your your children, to the next generation, yeah, um, or to a close family member in the next generation. 
So it's, it's really beautiful to see those stories, to see the reality of how, how people are living every day and counteracting this idea that people are unhappy or you know, dying on the sidewalk of famine. Even just using the word famine just drives me, drives me insane. One more thing I know, Isaac is gonna kill me. Uh, one more little thing. Um, so an, another example to me that just came to me last night actually because I had been next door yesterday until 9 p.m. And just walking down to Mission Street, I was freezing. And this is not this is not like New York. And I was freezing. My fingers, I couldn't feel my fingers. I was trying to use my phone and I couldn't, like my phone wasn't even recognizing the tips of my finger. It was so weird. My feet were so cold. So I was just thinking about all the folks that are living here on the sidewalk, in the richest city in the country, in the richest country in the world. Right? And then thinking about the fact that the Venezuelan government through Cibgo, which is an oil company that now has all of its accounts frozen thanks to Trump, right, where we're not being allowed to access up about $3 billion, right? Or more, $7 billion. Um, $7 billion to Venezuela. That same company every year during the winter has been donating oil to communities in the Bronx because they don't have access to heat and people die of the freezing temperatures. So that's the kind of dichotomy that we're talking about tonight. Um, and I just wanted to kind of paint that picture a little bit for you. Just yeah, so that's great. Um, I think that my goal speaking here today was sort of like challenge us as a leftist community and including myself um, challenge our anti-imperialist analysis and hopefully make it stronger so that we can be stronger um, in all of the different work that we do. And when we come together in spaces like this in solidarity uh, for countries abroad. Um, I wanted to read just a quote from a newspaper. It says, uh, the government is to ration food uh, in an attempt to overcome shortages that it charges have been created by political opponents in the hope of overthrowing current president. Finance Minister Fernando Flores Labra on a nationwide broadcast last night accused opponents of the leftist government of creating a black market to prepare the way for the president's fall. And I'll read this one. The next three years saw a steady erosion of support for his government as president was forced to turn from his goal of reforming society to an increasingly desperate attempt to hold on to power. So, that sounds a lot about what we're hearing about Venezuela, but those are quotes from the New York Times in 1973 about Chile. <laughs> so, the, you know, Maduro is
Hello, and you're listening to a men's magazine. Uh, we are playing some footage from the Center for Political Education's teaching that they had a on Tuesday. I have a little bit of a technical difficulty here. Before we saw that president kidnapped, and we saw a president, uh, Gerard Latortu, I'm so sorry if I mispronounced that, um, named president. We saw a similar thing in Honduras. So I guess I kind of wanted to bring those things up to show that it's not something that happened in the 1970s. It's continuing to happen, um, but it's we're, we're seeing it through a more psychological warfare. And what I mean by that is that here in the United States, we're getting sort of um, we're getting articles that are written by people with the resources to write articles and publish them in the United States. So there's a really sort of disturbing invisibilization of people in Venezuela. I want to speak specifically to Afro-descendants, women's voices, and LGBTQ folks, because we're, we're here. Uh, I know I personally feel that uh, almost everybody has access to um, a computer all the time, uh, or a smartphone, maybe, or even a, a phone, at least, that takes pictures. But in Venezuela, a lot of the grassroots organizations that I worked with, people were functioning on Nokia phones. So if you don't have sort of like access to be able to publish those sorts of things, they don't get to us. And so we see a lot of opportunism uh, by the opposition and even parties that position themselves as third, as third options, um, taking advantage of uh, moments of tension like this coup to push, push their agendas. And so I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. But. Yeah, I mean, I, thank you so much. That was super powerful. I mean, something that I wanted to connect with that um, is precisely, you know, the, the levels of poverty did not have not allowed for a long time to for people to have access to technology. And one of the big programs that, that Chavez implemented was actually in the schools, giving kids in public schools access to canaitas, which are these like uh, small laptops where kids could connect to the internet and start practicing their skills around using a computer, right? And then there was a version then for, um, for, for the, the youngsters, right, in middle school and high school, um, where, where the laptops were a little bit bigger and they had a little more capabilities. But that was, right, some, and with that, he also used the opportunity not only for young folks to have access and skills around technology, but, he also used the opportunity to have the workforce in Venezuela uh, assemble the, the laptops um, on, on the ground with, with parts from China and, and different trade agreements with China. Um, and just another piece, you know, speaking about other countries, another big piece and contrast that, that I have uh, that is very connected to my work, I've been doing work on human rights uh, for many years, and in Venezuela, when I was growing up, anybody who was from Colombia, from Ecuador, uh, mostly Colombia and Ecuador were the kind of uh, largest groups of immigrants from, from Latin America, right? The other immigrants came from Europe, from Portugal, Portugal and, and Italy and Spain, obviously, because it's the colonizer. Um, so the, with the folks that were from Latin America, the attitude was always, oh my God, these are all the criminals. Look at all the criminals getting in here. They're making our country terrible. What's that sound from <laughs> With Chavez, he actually made sure to start changing those attitudes, talking about that, 
talking about how we were brothers and sisters with other folks in Latin America and started to basically provide documents to folks. And until today, what we hear from the right wing, and, and I, I still get comments on Facebook from the right wing talking about how part of the fraud in the elections is all the Colombians that have IDs. Yeah, thank God they have IDs. Don't we want every single immigrant here in the US to have IDs? Well, I guess not if you're a Trump supporter. So this you know, continues to kind of show that the kinds of people, the dichotomies of what communities are asking for what, and are, right, what kind of discourse they have about, about people and about what voices mm -hmm. do we get to hear. Yeah, so um, I think that it's just important that we challenge ourselves to find um, articles and statements written by organizations that align themselves with the people of Venezuela, not who are working in Chile, who are working in Brazil, or working in Argentina, um, but people on the ground. And you know, we can share with each other those sorts of resources when we find them. Um, because for example, I'm not seeing things posted by La Araña Feminista, which is a, it's a feminist collective that has sort of like cells, I guess you could call it, um, in all the large municipalities in Venezuela. Um, Afropatria, which is a, a Chavista Afro-Venezuelan organization. Um, Trenzas Insurgentes, Centro de Saberes Africanos, um, just, you know, just to name, to name a few. Um, and then the last thing I want to challenge us to and challenge myself to is uh, how are we going to define autonomy, sovereignty, and respect the constitutions of other countries? Um, and so the Venezuelan opposition is a minority. Hopefully we know that. They're, they're a minority, but they're a vocal minority because they got money and money talks. Um, the consensus for my interactions about the situation right now is that no one, even leftists in the United States, has the right to call a plebiscite in another country or to say, we can fix this if you guys just had an election. And the, the reason I bring that up is because the Venezuelan Constitution, specifically Article 72, 233 and 234 speak directly to the right to recall any elected official in Venezuela, whether that be in your state, you know, in your town, all the way to the president. Um, and then the characteristics and responsibility of a president, as well as the characteristics of a president that is no longer uh, working, right? So that's already written and spelled out into the Constitution. Something I love about Venezuelan people is that even the little grandma, she's got her constitution in her back pocket. Like that was so inspiring to me because here, out here, the strategy of oppression is to make sure that we don't know what that constitution says. The laws are written in a language that I don't speak even though it's English. And whereas when you read the Venezuelan constitution, if, you, if you're a Spanish speaker or maybe you can find it in English, it is super to the point. Anybody who can read can read it and understand it. Uh, and I also just wanted to point out that Guaido, even though he's announced himself that he is the president and he is the constitutional uh, president of Venezuela, has already broken uh, parts of, the own, of his own constitution, of the own country that he is claiming to represent, um, particularly section 13 of 233, where he is making proclamations without the approval of the National Assembly, which is particularly ironic because the National Assembly is currently under control of the opposition. So it sort of uh, highlights the fact that this guy wasn't even talking to his own people when he made this proclamation. Because, um, I mean, today, it was funny, I was talking to um, 
what's it called, uh, Carolina, before I sat down, that I read that this woman, Blanca Moreno, who is a, she's a diputada in Aya, uh, Blanca Rosa Marmol, she is a uh, opposition party member of the National Assembly, and she announced today strong critiques of Guaido, um, saying that he is bluntly disrespecting the order of power by proclaiming himself president, and is not following constitution is not following the constitutional law, or uh, or and she's not recognizing him as an official. So, I just think that we also need to recognize that that this guy is like obviously a puppet of the United States because even this opposition project is just like who are you. You know, and maybe, maybe you know, a lot of us already like to deduce that, but I just thought it was a really interesting thing to see this lady who, you know, last week or three weeks ago was like super anti the government, and then today is just like, well, not this guy though. You know, so it's it's kind of just like if I feel like when the right wing is even saying we got to respect the constitution, I mean, that's just like it's, it's that. So I don't have anything else to add. So we're gonna to shift to Roberto speaking. Uh, before actually he does that, I was, what's that? Oh, oh yeah. Um, I wanna make sure that, uh, I actually wanna explain kind of what our thinking is in terms of the format of this event, um, so that this isn't just like a one-way conversation. After Roberto uh, does his thing, uh, we're actually, we, we slotted in time about 20 minutes for folks to get into small groups with each other or pairs or whatever to actually have time to talk about and I'll pose some, you know, some, some motivating sort of thoughts or questions. Um, but really just to talk about what are still some questions that emerge for you out of kind of what you heard, um, but also um, what are the ways that you can bring this back to your own work, right? Um, so, you know, whether that's anti-war work or immigrant rights work, what are the ways that we can bring an anti-imperial, you know, anti-intervention lens to your works, particularly in this moment around Venezuela. Um, and then after that, we're gonna have more time to kind of uh, dialogue with the folks up here as well. So with that, Roberto. Uh, thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Carolina and Carlos and Sofia for inviting me. And thank all of you for being here on important, uh, at an important moment. Uh, I think I'm here because a lot of reasons, one of which is I care about the kids in Venezuela and I care about the kids here because they could send kids here to die and kill in Venezuela. And I think we have to be clear on the stakes here in the United States for us, for our kids. Um, on a lighter note, uh, I was, uh, everybody's telling a personal story and I just had the great bad fortune to follow two powerful Latino women. so. Bear with me. Um, uh, actually, I'm glad to be at the Eric Casada Center because I knew Eric Casada when we were kids. He and I played on my brother's soccer team, which my super brilliant, politically inclined brothers called Club Conquistadores. <laughs> I used to bother Eric about that, and uh, you know, Eric was always anti imperialist, but not in soccer. <laughs> So, and, yeah, I, I would say this when he was alive, so I'm not shaming his, his death. So, and I, you know, I, I grew up on Folsom Street and used to go to church down the street on Valencia, evangelical church, right-wing Christian, a working-class kid, and we used to have fold-up chairs like this. It's kind of 
redeeming for me to be here, not be an evangelical Christian, have four different chairs <laughs> for different things. So um, let me get right to it. I got a lot of ground to cover. So um, yeah, from from Valencia Street and Folsom Street, I went on to travel the world and travel the hemisphere. First because of solidarity, and then because of uh, my journalism work. So I'll be speaking largely as a journalist, and maybe you'll see uh, a little bit of the former activists in El Salvador and other places. Um, I'm talking about the Venezuelan matrix, golpe suave, golpe mediático, golpe duro, golpe almohadillo. Um, yes. So there's going to be three questions I'm going to ask you to just think about, because that's what I'm going to speak to. What are the similarities between now and previous schools in America Latina? Second, what's the difference today? We have to be poets, all of us, because our language has to be in line with the time. We can't just take the dead tropes of the political past. We have to learn from the past, but there's a current moment that has particular realities we have to face as, that you all have to face as political people and me as a journalist. This is being recorded, so I got people watch me sometimes. So. <laughs> uh, and then third, what does it mean for those opposed to US policy? Next. So my goal, basically, is to share with you what I've learned as a student of US destabilization and intervention over 30 years. And this is a, an example of a, you know, people with experience in America Latina know what happens when there's a coup attempt. It's been so common for more than 30 years, if you include Guatemala, etc. So there's a deep knowledge, and I think, I encourage you to factor that in, because that gives you hope that people know how to deal, too. Because they are experienced people. Uh, next. So what are the similarities? So there you see, I'm glad Sofia was talking about Chile, because there's some clips I got from Chile. Chile sin pan, paro de camioneros, gran paro nacional, emergencia en Chile. Does that sound familiar? Yes. This is absolutely familiar. In imaginative ways, because they are adversarial. Yeah, if you want to go ahead. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. Chile without bread. Anybody, anybody here not speak Spanish? Okay, Chile without bread. Chile without bread does not mean Chile sucks, okay? It means Chile without bread. No. Yeah. This guy. Emergency in Chile. Emergency in Chile. Violence because of political violence. Like, this is all targeting. Uh, the end of government at the time. Next, please. So, the rationales, they're very common. Taxis of evil, lots of evil. Lots and lots and lots of evil. Right? So here you have George Bush announcing the axis of evil. There you have the weapons of mass destruction. There you have the CIA confirming it. There you have the man who came up with the idea of the axis of evil, John Bolton. Okay, next. The rationale hasn't changed. Neither has the political imagination. And this is actually as I say that these people don't have a good political imagination in many ways. Look, they just basically cut and paste axes and put in troika and then tyranny instead of people. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and I want to be clear, this is not a Republican right-wing agenda. Barack Obama has done when I was there, has done an incredible amount to destabilize the government of Venezuela. The Democratic Party supported it. These are bipartisan efforts. When the empire goes out, hey, you know, they are of one mind because the powers that be work that way. Video, please. So, 
ads really quick that they're using Elliot Abrams again, even though, even though he lied about El Salvador, he had, like, it's not working. Uh, I just want to show this clip of Pompeo. Anybody see an interview with Pompeo? Well, let's just skip it because it's taking too long. The connection's not strong enough. So there's a clip of, there's an interview with, with Pompeo, the Secretary of State, former head of the CIA, saying basically there's a Hezbollah sightings yeah. in Venezuela. <laughs> I, as journalist, went to investigate and started my fears at the Orlando Sentinel. when the Southern Command needs a budget. Okay, because of the Central Command of the Middle East. Right, so, um, all to say, there's never been any proven certifiable anywhere cited except, you know, kind of Lebanese farmers, descended farmers in, in the countryside. Next. Again, you have the same, the same actors, Elliot Abrams, special assistant to President Reagan on Central America, and Central, uh, Special assistant on mass murder as well. Next. So uh, there's also this similar moral justification for militarization. In the case of Nicaragua, we have Lady Abrams using humanitarian aid. You'll see this in the news. Uh -huh. You know, and what happened? Abrams got caught with uh, weapons, using weapons, using humanitarianism to deliver weapons uh -huh. to the Contra. So, some of us are saying there may be, a, it's, it's kind of understand, you could put a contra frame on this, so there's definitely a contra kind of frame. Next. There's only names again with a guy I met, David Smolansky, who's now with the Organization of American States, charged with immigration. Go figure. Because of this guy, I almost got killed. I can't share it now, because I'm rushing. <laughs> the moral justification for militarization in the case of Venezuela, humanitarian aid. It's very useful from a strategic standpoint to use humanitarianism. Why would that be? Why would that be? We like to feel good. Why else? How does it make your adversary look? Bad. They don't want humanitarian aid. So you see, it's 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 a very smart, tried and true method uh, to use humanitarian aid for military. Next. Operational slappiness. Thank God these guys are really soft. Okay? This is Eugene Hobson. Does anybody remember him? Some of you all with less darker hair than others might remember Eugene Hobson. Anybody? He was a pilot caught flying bombs into Nicaragua. His plane got shot down in Costa Rica and he was arrested by the Sandinistas transferring arms. Well, guess what? We just had a report that there was a Venezuelan. The Belgian military caught arms shipments from uh, from South Florida. From Florida. Florida. Yeah, I would, you know, there's also stuff going on through Colombia. Next. 
Massive funding for destabilization program. I really focused a lot of energy on this. I wish I could just have the time, but we have AID, National Endowment for Democracy, International Republican Institute. Next. Something the media is forgetting, something we cannot forget. There ever and always has been and always will be a covert operation component to destabilization programs. That's textbook. They'll teach you at West Point where I've been. They'll teach you in left circles where I've uh, interviewed people. So, uh, so you have the Southern Command, the NSA, backup, CIA, and uh, where a lot of the action right now in Venezuela is, is at the Naval War College, I'm told. Next. Same political ambition, dismantle the state, eviscerate the entire government. They sometimes have political ambition and imagination. So during 2002 coup, when they tried to depose Chavez, they did for a day, and then the Venezuelan people took it back. They dismantled the Constitution, they dismantled every branch of government. Some of the players who were involved in that in Venezuela are also involved now. Like a guy I was doing an investigative story named Roberto Lopez. Next. This man, he was a, a mentor by Roberto Lopez, uh, Juan Guaido. Uh, same thing, he's trying to dismantle the entire government, nothing less. Except he's got the help of Donald Trump's tweets. <laughs> which are kind of a joke, but like if you talk to people that know media and communication, Donald Trump is the greatest publisher in world history. <laughs> no, no, that's no joke. It's real. It's very real. It's a sad reality. Next. Economic sabotage. Chile. I wish I could go into it, but next. Economic sabotage in Venezuela. Unlikely crime against humanity. This is a guy I actually met. Uh, Alfred de Science. He basically is the, was a special rapporteur up until 2017 uh, from the United Nations to um, <coughs> Venezuela. And he determined that the US sanctions were, quote unquote, unlikely crime against humanity, which should be investigated in international courts. <coughs> so when you see these images of Venezuelans starving or whatever is going to come and whatever is already happening, it has a component that is domestic. There has been corruption in Venezuela. There has been overdependence on oil and other problems. But there's also been an open, over-destabilization effort through, um, through, you know, sanctions. And God knows what's, and some good investigators know what's going on under the surface of the economy to destabilize and sabotage. It's standard operating procedures. I, I challenge my journalist friends all the time on Twitter. Dude, where are you on covert operations? Don't you even investigate this? Nobody is, by and large. I'll get into that in Q&A. <laughs> I can say that because I know it. Next. <laughs> US funded mass mobilizations. You got the example of Chile, 200,000 anti-Marxists in Chile. Next. US funded mass mobilizations. You have the same actors, same institutions, 20 years, tens of millions of dollars in USA, just in Venezuela. Venezuela's opposition is hands down the greatest recipient of US destabilization dollars ever. Okay, next. US funded mass mobilization. You see them on the news. Well, they've got basically like destabilization welfare going on in Venezuela. Next. Paramilitary operations, standard operating procedures, sadly. This is what we found out after it happened in Chile. You get reports. Next. Violent paramilitary operations, 
via political parties. In the case of Chile, you had a group called El Frente Nacionalista, Nacionalista Patria y Libertad. I have friends who were uh, killed by these people and whose families were killed. Uh, next. In the case of El, El, El Salvador, that's another country I know really well. Uh, Venezuela is it's Voluntad Popular, uh, founded by this man, Leopoldo Lopez, who's in jail, who is the, some say, the godfather behind the eminence, preeminence behind the scene of Guaido. And um, uh, I have a lot of trouble right this way, let me tell you. Uh, they, they sponsored these things called Guarimbas, which are were violent protests in the city where they did a few things that I'll show you next. Violent operations by a political party. You have people like this young man here. Look at what he does. Look what he says. Next. This is a member of the Voluntad. No, sorry. Back up. If you can go on the video. You have this young man here. Oh, oh we don't. I mean, do you want to hear his voice? You saw his face. Do you know who he is? Maybe somebody can read. Maybe like the captions that you want to read. Yes. Just read the captions. You know who this is? Yeah. We've been here for five hours. Francisco Miranda told the people, if you look down there on the highway, there are also many people resisting. I remember 2007 we shouted students. Now we shout resistance, resistance. Let's go, yes we can. These students, some of these people affiliated with these students put a gun to my chest because they didn't like my line of questioning. In 2014, when this was happening. You know that young man is? Guaido. Guaido. Mm -hmm. The quote unquote president elect of Venezuela. Next. So he comes from the extreme violent right of Venezuela. Educated in Washington. What's different now? Next. What's different, I would say, is the geopolitical situation, obviously, the correlation of forces in America Latina. You know, there has changed thanks to the Obama Justice Department to help depose. Uh, governments by the justice system. I was going to write that story, but I'm writing this book. Uh, the domestic correlation of forces inside the United States, the Trump factor, the possibility of actual warfare, very serious when you have people like uh, LA groups, John Bolton, who have experience taking us into wars, to devastation and decline of the US global and global media system. That's something very different, even from 2014 to the present. Uh, and the threats and opportunities it opens up. Always know there's an opportunity and there's always an opposition. This seems overwhelming to see, but and there's an overwhelming feeling because they've used overwhelming media force on this right now. It's a, it is a psychological, I would just, I hate to, yeah, I would just correct one thing. I've studied war manuals. War is always psychological. When I saw dead bodies in Salvador, chopped up to pieces, it wasn't because they were just vicious. It has to, because of, because of the psychological effect. As any trauma survivor and witness knows, wars had its war psychological, bringing people back to Clausewitz to the present. So next, I want to talk to you a little bit about what's different in terms of full spectrum media warfare, social and traditional. Um, the Pentagon and its allies are very clear on the nature of warfare now in the 21st century. Next. I follow the, you know, I like to, I'm, I geek out on counterinsurgency and stuff, so, uh, you know, I follow the careers of people like Dr. Max G. Manwaring, who I owe a debt of ingratitude for the massive load of trauma he left in my mind in part because of what I saw in El Salvador. 
this is one of the people that helped bring us there. So you have people that have been operating for years, right? And uh, he wrote this oral history, and he's been thoroughly committed to warfare since before in Salvador. Next. So Man of Warring more recently wrote this book, Venezuela as an Exporter of Fourth Generation Warfare Instability. So they were studying what Chavez was doing with information, right? And, uh, but they also made some interesting comments that I, I wanted to share with you so that we get it kind of, I was talking about what's different. What's different is clearly their perception of warfare. We must, let me quote this, we must also adapt our approach to the overwhelming reality that just as, that just as the world has evolved from an industrial society to an information-based uh, uh, Society. Society, thank you. So has warfare. The reality of this evolution demonstrates the need for a new paradigm of conflict based on the fact that information, not firepower, is the currency upon which war is now conducted. And go on. So information is at the heart of warfare now. They're very clear. I don't think the left is. We still think it's just doing a protest is kind of winding down. Ooh, next. Uh, it's a video of Maduro talking about guerra me mediática, golpe mediático, right? Um, but I don't just see Maduro. This is a friend of mine study that I'll share with people later on the kinds of specific things they're doing that, you know, in terms of information warfare. Next. The only thing I'll say is, I'll stop for a minute, is this. My friend Aaron studies this stuff and geeks out on it like I like to. She's way more than I do. She says, quote, their trends generate billions of impressions each day. The Venezuelan opposition generates billions of trends in information about in support of the opposition. And she says, and this is somebody who actually geeks out on it, I've never seen anything with such a tremendous reach as this Venezuelan opposition hashtag, which is why I've continued monitoring it since I first found it in June 2017. Next. Uh, I wish I could have more time with this is a guy who, Lorenz uh, Saleh, who had a strange and wondrous career as an opposition leader. Yeah. Next. And you know, I would show you, but uh, one has him, he was just in Mexico and denouncing the Venezuelan government, the Mexican government for not supporting the coup. And he's there as a victim of human rights. And you can go on his Twitter feed and you can see him meeting with presidents, with foreign, foreign uh, ministers with all manner of powerful global players. So you want to understand how these coalitions are built, people like this. The other YouTube, can, let's, can we share that? Yeah, we could also send it on afterwards. Yeah, this, I just want you to see, so this is a guy who's out there being a victim, his job is to be victim publicly. But the context of this guy is that he was part of like death, like healing that, That's not what I was gonna show on the video, was that yeah. he, Let's just, the video is that he, he was caught off camera basically plotting sniper attacks, bombings, assassinations, and other acts that in this context can only be called what? Terrorism. No, no, he's not white though, so it's not terrorism. <laughs> can only be called terrorism, right? But, but he's not a terrorist, he's a public figure he got a, a Sakharov Human Rights Award. It's astounding that the media has allowed these people to become the voices of next. We'll forward it along. Yeah. 
there's the things that they've done, bombing, assassinations, drone attack on Maduro, burning black people alive. We're talking about Abuelas and Dientes. Yes. Uh, next. The father that I met, who's uh, left out of the narrative in 2014. There's his son, uh, Elvis, next. There's the people that are putting the barbed wire, the peaceful opposition, Why on the recommendation of a, uh, uh, a rogue, a Venezuelan general, put up barbed wire across the street when I was there. And there's what happened to uh, Elvis, his, he was beheaded by the Venezuelan opposition. Yeah, so he tweeted, like his violent, you know, military guy tweeted instructions on if you wanted to kill um, motorizados, motorcycle riders, because in Venezuela, most of the working class have motorcycles because they can't afford cars, cars. And this was the result. In a wealthy part of town in Altamira, Chacao, um, they put this barbed wire, you can't see it. And then they also put oil on the floor, car oil, um, and then they decapitated a couple of people. The media painted the general as a maverick in the United States, the Associated Press, because yeah. he was the guy that took a machine gun and pulled himself up in his house, yeah. and they turned him into a maverick hero, not even mentioning this. Next. Fake news, we know Rush, I don't want to go into that. Next. Real news, do I need to talk to you about what's happening with the news? We can go in Q&A. And I just want to end on a happy note with Kevin Spacey from 2014. Uh, there he is with Enrique Peña who was caught by Forbes taking an $8 million bonus for promoting Enrique Peña saying his government was great. Then you have Kevin Spacey saying they are on the right side of history. Of the Venezuelan opposition, like Belo Porto Lopez. This is why I got interested in wanting to investigate Belo Porto Lopez, who I found out was uh, connected to all these violent extremist networks. Next. So, to conclude, implications, let me put on my strategist hat, arbitrarily and artificially for a moment. I'm a journalist. But if I was a strategist, <laughs> I think there's a clear goal is to stop U.S. intervention. I would think, as a strategist, that you need to rally people locally and nationally and network. I would think that you focus on non-intervention, like U.S. out of El Salvador used to be our slogan back when, and focus on a clear and simple message. No blood for oil. That was a message to Iran war. Very effective, very easy to understand, and it travels into these massive networks that are in your pocket right now, right? Very lightly and easily. And if I was a strategist, I would fight 